Welcome everyone to the satsang. <clears throat> it's always a pleasure to see you all. And uh, I want to welcome uh, uh, our old friend Karuna, who's here from Queensland for a few days. And a very special welcome to somebody I haven't seen in 40 years, who um, who used to come to the Gore Street Ashram when I was there and was actually uh, attended uh, the intensive that I gave on October 2nd and 3rd, 1982, um, in which on the Sunday morning I got a phone call from Fallsburg that Baba had taken samadhi. And then I went down and I announced that to everyone and we started, we ended the intensive after one day, it was a two-day intensive. And uh, he was there, he was telling me that he remembers it vividly. So this is uh, Dr. Dennis Robertson. <laughs> Very nice to see <clears throat> Welcome, Dennis. So tonight, I will welcome you as I always do as Baba used to do, by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varisanmane Kesat 
Prem Sehadik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would say that every night. And he always emphasized the welcome, welcoming another person with love and welcoming yourself with love. And uh, David Mars, a little under the weather, but Gopal is sitting in the right seat. So, <laughs> <clears throat> so um, tonight, uh, one of my favorites, one of the great Western teachers, uh, G.I. Gurdjieff, <clears throat> and we found some uh, footage of him on the internet in his later years. It's quite uh, charismatic. And the background music I want you to note uh, is by Thomas DeHartman. More about him later. But the, you listen to the background music and watch this about three minutes of video. And let's watch Gurdjieff. <laughs>
It's not that he smoked, it's did he ever not smoke? <laughs> it was a different era, wasn't it? Uh, so, that's very nice footage of him. This is probably within a year of his death, quite a, uh, an old man there. <clears throat> the first bit is uh, from uh, a book by Olga and Thomas de Hartman uh, called Our Life with Mr. Gurdjieff. And de Hartman is the writer of that music that you heard, and he collaborated with Gurdjieff on many of his things. He was, uh, he was uh, an aristocratic uh, Russian, uh, and they always had trouble when the revolution came in, so he went off and followed Gurdjieff to Europe at that point. <clears throat> he was a, a musical prodigy. Uh, he studied music with Rimsky-Korsakov, you probably heard of, and maybe Arensky and uh, Tanyev, who you probably never heard of. Uh, and he was a friend in Europe of, of Kandinsky, Vasily Kandinsky, the, the painter who you did hear of. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, they were really close friends, and they did stage productions, which I wish I could see, uh, where, where um, the Hartman would play the piano, and uh, they had a, a Sakharov a Russian dancer who would dance, and um, uh, Kandinsky would not paint. He would narrate Russian folk stories and then shout instructions and so on. And this would be an entertainment they would do, but I'd love to see that. Uh, um, uh, and they, he lived in, uh, he and his wife, Olga, and we have a, a photograph of their wedding. That's not it. This is when, I think he was about 20. He married uh, Olga de Hartmann, both of these characters in the story you're gonna hear. <clears throat> and later on, they both lived in the, in the, in the uh, Gurdjieff's ashram, the Prairie. Prairie. Okay. Prairie. <laughs> Um, uh, for, for many years, and then he went on. And he ended up; uh, they both ended up in uh, living in America after Gurdjieff's death. But they continued uh, doing his work uh, and continued writing music. So this is from uh, Olga de Hartmann. This is Olga de Hartmann's uh, bit in the book about how she met Gurdjieff's very charming stories. He says, On February, in February 1917, we lived at Tsarskoye Selo, which is uh, where the royal family, the imperial family, lived outside of St. Petersburg. <clears throat> because my husband had been recalled to his regiment as a reserve officer and it was to go to the front at the end of the month. He also he went into the army, and like his father before him, they, he was uh, served in the army. <clears throat> it was a cold winter day, and we sat in our study, occupied by our individual work. My husband handed me a typescript and asked me whether I'd like to read it. 
I began to read it once. And when I read a few pages, I stopped and told my husband, if we could find the man who said this, I would gladly follow his teaching. In reply, my husband told me that he not only found this man, but also had met him. Instead of being glad, I flared up and reproached him for not having told me. <laughs> this is a realistic touch, isn't it? <clears throat> it was our first quarrel. As soon as Gurdjieff enters the picture, the quarreling begins. <clears throat> but my desire to know more about this man was stronger than my irritation. <clears throat> and when I calmed down, your, your wisdom should always be somewhat stronger than your ignorance. And then eventually it'll win. The problem is sometimes our ignorance is much stronger than our wisdom. But in time, it happens. <clears throat> as, I, as I calmed down, I discovered that he was soon to return from Moscow and my husband would be able to see him to take me along. Finally, the day came. I always love meetings with great beings, no? meetings with remarkable men. <clears throat> well, I didn't tell you about Gurdjieff. Well, I think most of you know who he was. He was, he was uh, born in the Middle East, somewhere in uh, Armenia, eastern Turkey, actually. And uh, he seems to have studied in the Sufi tradition. He traveled through Asia, and uh, he uh, acquired teachings in various monasteries of uh, Sufi monasteries there. And no one really knows where he got all of it from. None of it seems to exist anywhere else. It's quite an original and extraordinarily relevant teaching for modern times. And then he came back and he started doing groups in uh, Russia. And uh, people started being uh, attracted to him. And, and eventually, he led them uh, through the mountains during the, the revolution, uh, and led them to Europe, and eventually acquired a, his ashram in, uh, near Paris, and traveled to America, and so on, <clears throat> and had a big following among the intelligentsia. Uh, a lot of famous intellectuals, artists, were interested in him. <clears throat> okay, so where was I? Finally, they came. The meeting was arranged for half past eight in the evening in the apartment of Mr. and Madame Uspensky, whom I did not yet know. And Uspensky we'll hear from in the next piece. <clears throat> it also happened to be the birthday of my younger sister, Zoya, and my parents were giving a ball for her, which, of course, we had to attend, Zoya's ball. So I put my fur coat over my ball dress, and remained in it all evening. I love these little details. <clears throat> As we went to the meeting for the first time, we sat a little apart from the rest of the group. The room was not very large. In front of a Turkish sofa, about 15 people were sitting on chairs. The man we longed so much to see was not in the room. Everything seemed quite strange to me and I was struck by the sincere and simple way in which the people spoke. Dr. Sternval, who appeared to be the head of the group, one of his pro Gurdjieff's prominent devotees, asked the people what they could say in answer to the question 
that had been put to them at the last session. The question was, <clears throat> it's a good question always, what is the main thing that hinders a man from advancing on the way to self-development? Or maybe it should be said, what hinders you? Do you think, what is the main thing that hinders you from advancing in self-development? There were several different answers. One said it was money, another fame, yet another love, and so on. <clears throat> Quite unexpectedly, like a black panther, <laughs> a man of oriental appearance, such as uh, never seen before, came in. <clears throat> he wasn't, in those days, he, he wasn't all white-haired white and, and so on, and he was thin and uh, athletic. He went to the sofa and sat down with his legs crossed in the Eastern manner. He asked what they were speaking about, and Dr. Sternbrahl reported the question and answers. When he mentioned love, Mr. Gurdjieff interrupted him. Yes, it is love. Love is the strongest obstacle to man's development. <laughs> ah, I, love, I love that. <clears throat> At that moment, I thought, this is saying it for her, and she realized that later. Again, the same, also we have to part. We kind of think of self-development and stay together, and I was quite disturbed. So she takes it personally. It means her husband, she will part. However, Mr. Gurdjieff continued, what kind of love? There are different kinds. <clears throat> when it is self-love, egotistical love, or temporary attraction, it hinders because it ties a person down and he's not free. But if it is real love, with each one wishing to help the other, then it is different. And I'm always glad if husband and wife are both interested in these ideas, both on the path, because they can help each other. I could scarcely look up, she says. Nevertheless, I had a distinct feeling that Mr. Gurdjieff was looking at me. <clears throat> Today, I am certain that he said this specially for me. I was in a very strange state. I was so happy. Then we had to leave and go to the ball. As I entered the ballroom of my parents' home, everyone was already dancing. I suddenly had a definite feeling as if something had hit me in the chest. The people who were dancing seemed to be puppets. Within a few days, I had the opportunity of speaking with Mr. Gurdjieff alone. <clears throat> I was reluctant to do so because people had told me that Mr. Gurdjieff would ask me what I expected from him. <laughs> so I wavered, but finally decided to go. Before I could even say anything, Mr. Gurdjieff asked me how I had felt when I went home that evening. <clears throat> I did not know how to express my experience. I did not even realize it was an experience, but I told him about the strange feeling I had when I entered the ballroom. He answered that it was good, <laughs> that he was glad. What's your analysis of this? Yeah, he was a Shaktipat guru. There are many instances of him giving Shaktipat. So he says it's good. I do not really remember, except that he was satisfied and said if, if we wished, 
my husband and I could always come to see him whenever he was in St. Petersburg. I told him that my husband had to go to the front and that neither of us would remain in the city much longer as I wanted to follow my husband as far as I could be allowed to go. So she was going to go as far as she could with him. I also asked whether it was not possible for my husband to avoid going to the front. No, he said, when you live among wolves, you have to howl like a wolf. <laughs> but you should not get taken over by the psychosis of war. And inside, you should try to be far removed from all of this. Okay. He asked me only, <clears throat> do you wish in general to come? What do you expect? I told him I could not tell him. He would laugh at me. He said in a very nice tone that one might use with a child, no, tell me, I won't laugh. Perhaps I can help you. So I said, the only thing I wish from you is that you don't spoil my happiness with my husband. Gurdjieff did not laugh. <clears throat> you probably have an apartment with seven rooms, he said. But if you become interested in the questions that bring your husband here, you'll perhaps an have an apartment with 107 rooms and perhaps be even happier then than you are now. I understood at once that my happiness with my husband would not be spoiled, only that my horizons would be much, much broader. <clears throat> In the corner stood a ladder. Mr. Gerger pointed to the ladder and said, if you begin to go up step by step, then once you come to the top, you will never fall down again. So it is, so it is in your development. You have to go step by step and not imagine that you could be at the top of the ladder at once. <clears throat> the next time I spoke with Mr. Gurdjieff, I was not as afraid as the first time, and I told him, Mr. Gurdjieff, I thought very much about the ladder, but I, I know I will have no force even no desire to climb to the top. So I decided it was better to try to help my husband and you to reach the top of the ladder by pushing you from behind because I see that you and my husband wish it so much. Mr. Gurdjieff, again, was not angry with me at all. <laughs> he only told me, I'm very glad that you're not egoistic and that you think more about us than about yourself. But look, you can push us perhaps from the second step to the third, from the third step to the fourth, but then you cannot reach us. So in order to push us higher, you also have to go up one or two steps. So he has to do some sadhana too. Is this charming or what? <clears throat> Looking back on this episode, I see so clearly how clever Mr. Gurdjieff was if he had told me to read books, make efforts, or do the exercises that he gave to others, I surely would not have done anything or would only have done them half-heartedly. But when he pictured for me that I would stay down and my husband would go up, that I would no longer be able to follow him or be with him or even to understand him, that frightened me so much <laughs> that I once began with all my force and understanding to follow everything that Mr. Gurdjieff asked. 
Isn't that wonderful? Such a clever guy. <laughs> so um, now we have a, a more serious piece. I began with the charming story this time. <clears throat> so this is, uh, this is Uspensky, who you know, P.D. Uspensky. Uh, very peculiar, very peculiar. <laughs> He's the quintessential rational man. A lot like me, very rational, very solid. <laughs> yeah. And Uspensky um, is the great interpreter of Gurdjieff, and we, we have to thank him. You know, some of these great beings have a great writer uh, who, uh, who we can thank for presenting them. And just as uh, Ramakrishna has uh, Mahendranath Gupta, who wrote a great book, makes you feel like you're with him, so Ospensky, in, uh, in Search of the Miraculous, did a similar thing uh, for Gurdjieff. Being with Gurdjieff is not quite like being with Ramakrishna, <laughs> but it has its similarities also. <clears throat> so this is uh, a section about um, personality and essence, two aspects, which is a very interesting thing. So this is from In Search of the Miraculous. Next time, G, he always says G, G is Gertrude, of course, began again with the question of will, quoting G said, the question of will, of one's own will, and of another person's will, is much more complicated than it seems at first glance. A man has not sufficient will to do. Gurdjieff always said, man cannot do, which is an interesting thing. Here, Spensky explains, or Gurdjieff's explaining what he means to do. What does it mean that man cannot do? He says, that is to control himself and all of his actions. But perhaps he has sufficient will to obey another person. So he's saying a person can't attain something because he's insufficiently strong. But if he finds a great being, a guru, and, and uh, follows his, his directions, he might attain. He's saying that. <clears throat> and only in this way can he escape from the law of accident. There is no other way. The law of accident. We'll come back to that. It must be understood that man consists of two parts, essence and personality. Woman also. So he, in this book, they, he talks about man. So that implies everything. <clears throat> oh. Remember, this is queer yoga. So we, we have all the letters here. <clears throat> essence in man is what his, is his own. <clears throat> essence in man is what is his own. Personality in man is what is not his own. What is your own and what is not your own. <clears throat> not his own means that it's come from outside. What is learned or reflects. All traces of exterior impressions left in the memory and in the sensations 
all words and movements that have been learned, all feelings created by imitation, all this is not his own, all this is personality. So things that have been come from the culture is, is not our essence. This is what we've learned. A lot of our thoughts and ideas have been come from outside of us. And we think we hold them passionately, but actually we've just been uh, indoctrinated with them. When you start doing yoga, you start to discover which ones you really hold and which ones have just been this kind of indoctrination that we've had. He goes on, Gurdjieff, <clears throat> most people live under the law of accident only. Accident refers to personality. And here's what he means by accident. They're affected by whatever happens to occur, by whatever people say and do, in short, by chance events. So to live under the law of accident means that you're, you're, you're constantly in the wind, like a leaf in the wind, being affected by what people say about you and by what happens. You go up and down like a yo-yo uh, because of that. But, if, but a great being is not like that. A great being is rooted in the self, firm and solid, so that what happens outside doesn't have a deep effect on him. Doesn't, it, might, it might interact with him, it might affect his emotions on some level, but he's always centered in that place of beingness, of self. And so that's where you move. You move from being under the law of accident where you're, you're, you're sent here and there by whatever occurs to having a center of gravity, Gurdjieff would say. How's the boy? <clears throat> okay, so he says, essence is deeper. So that's personality. Essence is deeper. It is not changed by every chance occurrence. So there's an element in you that doesn't change. From the point of view of ordinary psychology, the division of man into personality and essence is hardly comprehensible. In fact, such a division does not exist in psychology at all, although it should. A small child has no personality as yet. He is what he really is. He is essence. His desires, tastes, likes, dislikes, express his being such as it is. <clears throat> but as soon as so-called education begins, personality begins to grow. Personality is created partly by the intentional influences of other people, education, you know, that is by education, and partly by involuntary imitation of them by the child itself. In the creation of personality, a great part is played by resistance to people around him. So it's our reaction. So this is what you call trauma. I have trauma when I was a kid because of resistance to actions of others. And by attempts to conceal from them something that is his own real essence. <clears throat> you know, if you think about why we love babies and animals, uh, because they sow so much essence. They're just what they are. They haven't been uh, ruined by culture. I shouldn't say ruined, but they haven't been acculturated. <laughs> ruined, I'll stay with ruined. <clears throat> and of course, <clears throat> the <clears throat> classical articulation of this is uh, Wordsworth's immortality ode. 
a poem by Wordsworth. I always want to do a poetry class. This is my samskara talking. <clears throat> and the, po the poem I would do is Wordsworth's Immortality. Because he, he describes how a child comes down trailing clouds of glory from heaven. He's a divine being. He's just there. And then gradually he starts imitating adults and he loses this uh, divinity and just becomes like everybody else. And he wants to do it. He wants to become imprisoned in it. He, he likes to do it. And, it's a, it's a, and then he says, uh, uh, it might be from another poem, but he says, we lose the, the glory, the vision, and so on. Well, we know that happens. <clears throat> but it doesn't mean that a child is a realized being who still has to go through uh, developing personality. He goes on. <clears throat> Essence is the truth in man. Personality is the false. But in proportion as personality grows, essence manifests itself more and more rarely and more and more feebly. And it very often happens that essence stops in its growth at a very early age and grows no further. It happens very often that the essence of a grown-up man, even one of, uh, of very intellectual and in the accepted meaning of the word, highly educated, man stops at the level of a child of five or six. This is part of what happened when I, in my engagement in the uh, academic world. I thought all these people would be great beings. And I discovered that even highly decorated, even famous academics were actually like three-year-olds. We had tantrums and all kinds of stuff. It was a shock to me that they didn't have the nobility that I expected. But there was a bunch of beings somewhere on the planet I didn't know about that had that. <clears throat> this means that everything we see in this man is in reality not his own, all culture. What is his own in man, that is his essence, and it's usually only manifested in his instincts and in his simplest emotions. I'm sorry. There are cases, however, when a man's essence grows in parallel with his personality. I'm going to skip this. Uh, there's a tradition, uh, going, and it's got me on my literary path, but <clears throat> there's a tradition in 16th, 17th century poetry of what they call pastoral poetry, where the poets always sang the praises of the country. The city was wicked, too sophisticated, full of vice and duplicity. And the country was simple, wonderful beings full of simplicity and love, much better. And that the poet always yearned to be in the country like the Garden of Eden. You know, but instead he was in this sophisticated hell world. So that's, that's the play of essence and personality. The country represents essence, and the, and the uh, of course, Mount Eliza, you have a, a happy juxtaposition of both here. <clears throat> he says, but as a rule, the personality of such people is very little developed, talking about uh, people in the country. They have more of what is their own, but very little of what is not their own. That is to say, they lack education and instruction they lack culture. Culture creates personality, and it's at the same time the product and result of personality. 
we do not realize that the whole of our life, what we call civilization, all we call science, philosophy, art, and politics is created by people's personality. And that is what is not their own in them. So much of what we identify in, in, in modern life is just is caused by culture, by, by personality. The element that is not his own differs from what is a man's own by the fact that it can be lost, altered or taken away by artificial means. In certain Eastern schools, techniques were developed by which personality could be separated from essence. <clears throat> it could happen that through these means, two beings were formed in a person who speak with different voices, have completely different tastes, aims, and interests, and one of these two beings might even prove to be on the level of a small child. And in somewhere in the book, he talks about an experiment where, where a sophisticated being became very simple, and all he could desire was some strawberry jam. That was, <laughs> before that, he had all kinds of social programs and highfalutin ideas, but when this happened to him, he just said, what would you like? He said, some strawberry jam. <clears throat> In these experiments, it was possible to put one of the beings to sleep, either personality or essence, and it sometimes happened that a man full of the most varied and exalted ideas, full of sympathies and antipathies, love, hatred, attachments, patriotism, habits, tastes, desires, convictions, suddenly proved quite empty without thoughts, without feelings, without convictions, without views. Everything that had agitated him before now leaves him completely indifferent. <clears throat> a little bit of this happened to me in Ganeshpuri when I got to the ashram. Um, and I had lived you know, a fairly sophisticated life, urban life, academic life, with all kinds of educated uh, people around me and so on. And, um, <clears throat> and when I got to the ashram, that absolutely didn't exist. Oh, entertainment and music and you know, books, all this. Uh, well, books were there, but basically that whole world was taken away. Uh, polite dinners and all kinds of things. Um, just taken away. And all you had was the ashram grind, mantras and mantras, and wake up early and meditate and do, do you know. And it was like a whole thing was taken away from me. And I didn't realize how much I depended on that to prop me up. And then so it was like my personality disappeared, and I was left with my essence. And I was shocked to discover the weakness of my essence in many ways, the, the, uh, the tearing thoughts, the self-hatred, the fears, all the stuff that was in there, which, which can be only worked on through what Gurdjieff would call schoolwork, through sadhana, by, through practice, through meditation, through self-inquiry, you build essence. You become a true human being, a mature adult. You, you don't have your tantrums and your self-pity and your, and your whinging, pathetic, stuff that you have, you, you overcome that through, by building your essence. 
And this is, uh, you know, Baba had fiendishly set the ashram up in such a way to be, uh, to trap me completely. <laughs> Did it all for me. <clears throat> uh, okay. A very important moment in the work on oneself is when a man begins to distinguish between his personality and his essence. A man's real I, his individuality, can grow only from his essence. It can be said that a man's individuality is his essence grown up, mature. You can go get educated till the cows come home, get many PhDs and so on, and it won't help your essence. It'll be, it's like decoration. You're decorating it, but the core of it might be immature, so you have to do sadhana is what deals with the essence. Does this make sense? Really good. But in order to enable the essence to grow up, it is first of all necessary to weaken the constant pressure of personality upon it because the obstacles to the growth of essence are contained in personality. So that's why my years in the ashram were so good for me because uh, personality was basically removed. I mean, I did the best I could to retain it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was very little there. <clears throat> Nowadays, you'd have all your devices in the ashram. Uh, <clears throat> if we take an average cultured man, we will see that in the vast majority of cases, his personality is the active element in him, while his essence is the passive element. The inner growth of man cannot begin so long as this, is the order of this order of things remains unchanged. Personality must become passive and essence must become active. That means in practical terms, it means your sadhana has to come forward. Your connection with the shakti, with the self, has to be front and center, not in the background, not, not uh, the, the external part of yourself, but your spiritual life has to be front and center. You evaluate everything that happens from a spiritual perspective, always looking for the shakti, always looking for the self, always looking for peace and whatever arises. So I better stop what's going on. I got too much more. You enjoying this? It's good, isn't it? Uh, let me see. Let me see if I can knock it off by a uh, few things. Okay, he says that it's important to have personality for growth. <clears throat> he says, uh, uh, a cultured man lives far from nature, far from the natural conditions of existence, in artificial conditions of life, developing his personality at the expense of his essence. A less cultured man living in a more normal and more natural condition develops his essence at the expense of his personality. <clears throat> a successful beginning of work on oneself requires the happy occurrence of an equal development of personality and essence. If essence is very little developed, a long uh, period of work is required at the beginning, and this work will be quite fruitless if a man's essence is rotten inside 
or if it develops some irreparable defects. That's, you know, the, uh, I can't even speak about that. <clears throat> See, the, the teaching ultimately is that everyone is the pure self. But there are people so distorted by previous lives and so on that they, it'll take quite a while to untrack it and, and do it. So sometimes they can't do sadhana or can only do sadhana up to a certain point because these obstacles come up. But it's all right. Because in the, in the fullness of time, uh, everything works out. He says conditions of this sort uh, occur fairly often. An abnormal development of personality very often arrests the development of essence at such an early stage that the essence becomes a small, deformed thing. From a small, deformed thing, nothing else can be got. Uh, and that's the pressure we feel is because the pressure of sadhana, the pressure of the guru's shakti, is to make us grow. When we talk about growth, we're not talking about growth of personality. We're talking about the growth of essence. And sometimes that's very difficult, even painful. Ultimately, it's blissful, it's joyous. But in the short run, it can be painful. <clears throat> And so you read some more, this is really pathetic. Moreover, it happens fairly often that essence dies in a man while his personality and his body are still alive. I like this. A considerable percentage of the people we meet in the streets of a great town are people who are empty inside. That is, they're actually already dead. They're just walking along. When I was a kid, this is a terrible thing to say. So I, I think I probably should skip this. This would be a grizzly, grizzly. You want to hear something grizzly? So once my mother took me down, there was, uh, they had a, no, I can't tell the story. <laughs> it is fortunate for us that we do not see and do not know it. <clears throat> if we knew what a number of people are actually dead, and what a number of these dead people govern our lives, we should go mad with horror. Well, that was actually my condition when I went to India. I was mad with horror. And, and I wouldn't have said that, but that's what it was. I saw that uh, there was some kind of death going on. It wasn't the light of the spirit, and I was hungry for that. And indeed, people often do go mad because they find out something about this nature without the proper preparation. That is, they see something they're not supposed to see. In order to see without danger, one must be on the path. As I started to see this, it blew me onto the path. And then uh, and once you're on the path, you can easily see that people are asleep. Not dead. Let's not say dead. But people are asleep. People are asleep to the truth. They're caught in personality, they're caught in externals, and they're asleep to the truth. And the vast majority of people are basically asleep to the truth. And, uh, but we are trying to wake up. <clears throat> so let's do it, let's wake up. And the, the best way to wake up 
is by turning our awareness inwards and meditating and focusing on the self. When we focus on the self, we focus on our true essence. <clears throat> that true essence. Because when you stand inside in yourself, you're not showing off. You're not becoming a big deal. You're not impressing anybody. On the other hand, you're not disgracing yourself or uh, looking like an idiot. You're just there with your own beingness, your own truth. And then as you sit there in that beingness, your mind starts playing up, telling you all kinds of dumb stuff and all kinds of stuff from the past and from personality and from your neuroses and, and so on. And you just stand there and you, you let it go. You let, keep letting it go. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> that comes in and go, fuck off. Okay, now, so we're going to meditate. We're going to meditate for 10 minutes. And now I've spoken, and, uh, and Sri Ganesh might, might want to speak a little bit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, let's meditate now for 10 minutes. And once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all. With all my heart. Sat Gunat. Let's meditate.